Howdy. Hey, good to be here with you. My name is Adam Russell, and I am the pastor here at the Vineyard. Glad you are here. All right, hey, um, if you want to open up your Bibles this morning to 2 Peter chapter 1, we're going to look at a few verses this morning. A few verses this morning. Man, wasn't that song groovy just then? Dude, that is some, that's some slow jams. I'm feeling that. I was feeling it at first service too. I feel it now. It's like, I just want to, where's my wife? I need to dance with a woman. You can get lost in that, you know? It's good. Hey, before we open up the scriptures this morning, I want to begin with this idea. I want to begin with one idea in particular. Um, How many of you in the room um, know what what I'm talking about when I I talk about the gimmies? Anybody here ever get the gimmies? That's what my wife and I call them. You know what I mean? You guys know about the gimmies? Like, you just need, like, you need a new pair of pants. I mean, you don't need them, you just want them. You know, it's like, I have two great, no, I have more than that. I have several great loves in my life. One of them is just jeans. Like, I just, I love jeans. I will, I will spend money on jeans that I do not need. It's, it's, part of, it's part of my gimme issue. But sometimes, sometimes I don't know about you, but sometimes we come into this place where we just have the gimmies and we can't even help it. Just like, man, I need a new pair of jeans. But then as you get older, as you get older, like your gimmies change a little bit and you start wanting bigger things. You start wanting bigger things. Bigger, you know, like you need a new house or not even need a new house. Got a great house, just want another house. Got a fine car, would rather have another car. You know, just a car that I can just park in the garage and forget about. I just need one. Like, who does that? People do that, apparently. Why? Because we have the gimmies. Whatever. What I'm getting at is this. As you get older, this need for things, I just want stuff, you know, it really grows. It can. It really can. It really can. And uh, as you get older, again, it, it, it sometimes gets worse. It drives my mom bananas because every year she asks me, uh, what do you want for your birthday or what do you want for Christmas? And my answer to her is always, uh, you can't afford what I want. <laughs> anyway, most of us understand what it is like to feel like, gosh, I just want something. Scratch that itch a little bit. But then there's also another set of gimmies, especially because we're in church or whatever. There's another set of gimmies that kind of settles on us. I wouldn't call them gimmies. It's, it's just more of an awareness of our own need and lack. Uh, like, we, especially when you come into these kinds of places or these kinds of meetings and rooms, we just become aware sometimes of our need, like, for more compassion and more of an ability to forgive and be merciful to people. You know what I mean? You're like, I don't, sometimes we get here, especially in worship, you just, you're like, whoa, I just, I'm, I'm a needy person, and, and, and that overwhelms us. Now, I, I think some of this happens, I think some of this happens because of just the culture that we live in. Uh, Some of this is just the waters that we swim in. Like you and I are the most advertised two people that have ever lived in the history of the world. Like we have just been bombarded with one message after another. Uh, The message is tremendously the same, even though it shows up in different forms. And the message is you need more. Mike, you need more. Mike, you need more. Like you just need more. I need more. I need more. And after a while... 
not only does our own tendency towards selfishness, but it gets reinforced with advertising culture. And pretty soon, like, we just live in a constant state of gimme and in a constant state where we're basically always aware of our need. We just live with this constant awareness of our need. We need more sex. We need new shoes. We need a bigger car. We need a better body. If I just get skinnier, then I'll be happy and have more friends. Try that on. But then, occasionally, the kingdom of heaven comes around and it throws a stick into the rim of our bicycle and it sends us over the handlebars. You know that, you know that scene in, in, in Indiana Jones when that guy's riding the motorcycle and, and he just throws the thing in and he goes, yeah. There are certain scriptures that are like that. You just, you think, well, this is the way it goes and then something gets interjected. And this is one of those scriptures this morning and it, and it speaks to the idea that you and I have most days in our lives where we believe more than anything else that we're just needy people. Even the gimmies are coming out of our need. Look at what Peter says here. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Wow. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you read this really slowly, one of the things that happens is you realize that some of the way that we assume the world works gets thrown on its head. I love what Peter says there in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness all things that pertain to life and godliness. For every person in the room right now who is convinced that they're a needy person, and for every person's needs that manifest in the gimmies, either the compulsion to buy, or just just the overwhelming sense that I'm a loser before God, Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You see, one of the keys of the kingdom... One of the keys of the kingdom is the knowledge that God's kingdom is one of abundance. It stands in opposition to the way the world has built every system um, that exists. Uh, right now, our world exists with, with this idea. There's one thread that runs through the world systems, and it is the idea of scarcity, and it is, it is, it is one of lack. Uh, almost every single world system right now, economic, personal, relational, it is built upon the idea that there's only so much stuff, and uh, it's built on the op- it operates on the idea of scarcity. Um, there's only so much stuff. Uh, if if you have some stuff, the fact that you have some stuff means that I can't have some stuff. Uh, we call that a zero sum game. In order for Mike to prosper, somebody else has to lose. In order for someone else to win, Mike and I are going to lose. And so we all compete. In a zero-sum game, the only thing to do, the only thing that's left is to compete, and anxiety gets infused. you see how that works? Uh, it's one of the reasons that people freak out about things like jobs and incomes and, 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 and everything. The reason there's so much anxiety around that is because 
we live in this zero-sum game, and we live in a world that's constantly reinforcing you and I all the time that things are scarce. But the kingdom of heaven comes along and says, no, things are not scarce. There's abundance. There's more than enough, and there's surplus. And not only that, uh, you believe, and I believe oftentimes, that we're needy people who are existing in a place of need and we lack, when the truth is, the scripture that we read this morning, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. For life and godliness. The kingdom of heaven runs counter. It runs counter right across the grain. Right across the game. The kingdom of heaven is not a zero-sum game. And by the way, this is, all of this is, is up front. This is not later. Uh, a lot of us in the room uh, have bought into a salvation where all the good stuff comes later. Like the really good stuff is after you die. Like you'll just suffer for 80 or 90 years if you live a long life. And then after you die, then the good stuff. That's, that's hogwash. It's absolutely hogwash. Uh, the good stuff is now and later. It's now and later. All this is up front, which means that, that no one has to hoard. No one has to hoard their, their stuff and no one has to hoard even emotional energy. It also means that we don't have to protect that we don't have to protect ourselves, our stuff, or our, even our interests. We can be generous and open-handed. In fact, uh, when you meet someone who has been profoundly touched by God's kingdom, well, one of the things that I've noticed is uh, you are almost always meeting someone who is two things up front. Number one is generous, and the second thing is not anxious. When you have met somebody who has been profoundly touched, in a deep, deep sense, touched by God's kingdom, you will invariably meet someone who is generous and who is not anxious. Think about your life. Think about the people right now who are not anxious and who are generous. Those are people who have entered God's kingdom because they have entered into the reality and they've entered into the truth that the cosmos is not run by scarcity and the cosmos is not run by lack. It is, in fact, run by abundance, more than enough, surplus, and extra. Every time you meet somebody who is not generous, who lives life with two closed fists and arms crossed, every single time you meet somebody who's mostly anxious and always freaking out, you've met somebody who has not entered the kingdom yet. And you've met somebody who who really does, at the root of who they are, believe that the world is scarce. Uh, There's only so much money. There's only so many people. There's only so much good stuff. There's only so much health. Some people are always constantly freaking out about health stuff. They believe there's, you know, there's only just this little bit and then we're, you know, then it's all over. And then, you know what I'm talking about? But anytime you meet somebody who's really entered the kingdom, you will invariably meet somebody who is generous and somebody who is free of anxiety. And not just free of anxiety about one or two things, but just generalized free of anxiety. And when you meet somebody who's free of anxiety, free of anxiety means that there's room for joy to grow. Have you ever noticed that anxious people are never joyful? Why? There's no room. If your garden is completely full of anxiety, no room for another crop. So the world is not based principally upon lack. The the world is not based principally on scarcity. It is based upon abundance. Not only that, but you and I have actually already, right now, in the room, sitting in the purple chairs, in this moment, we have been given everything we need for life and godliness. What you need for life and godliness does not have to come later. It's right now. It's here. 
Now, does this mean there won't be sometimes where we have to look at the bank balance twice? Uh, does it mean that there won't be times of wanting or there won't be times of wondering? Well, of course there will be. Of course there will be. Uh, for starters, God's kingdom is now, but God's kingdom is also not yet. God's t- kingdom has come, but it is also coming. Um, and not only that, but the universe is trying to catch up to what has happened to Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. We celebrated his resurrection last Sunday. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He is resurrected. He has not been simply raised to life. He's resurrected. And by the way, Jesus is the only one who's ever been resurrected. Uh, when you get around uh, some of these guys who have healing ministries and they talk to you about uh, they resurrected someone, uh, no, they didn't. Uh, they raised somebody up. I actually believe people can come back from the dead. Been around a couple people who have. But those people were not resurrected. They're going to die again. Jesus is the only one who's been resurrected. Never going to die again. He has entered into non-perishableness. And because of that, the entire universe is trying to catch up to what has happened to Jesus. It works like this. When Jesus came out of the tomb last Sunday on Easter, when Jesus comes out of the tomb, it's as though the calendar shifted and we went from winter to spring. Does this make sense? We went from winter to spring. A little Narnia language there. Permanent winter to spring, summer, and harvest. But how many of you understand that a few weeks ago that our actual calendar went from winter to spring? Y'all remember that? And how many of you understand that since the calendar has gone from winter to spring, we've had several cold days? And how many of you understand that just because we had several cold days that felt like winter, it doesn't mean that it wasn't spring? It's actually spring. How many of you understand that trying to convince somebody that it's winter when the calendar says it's spring is foolish? This is what Peter is hinting at. You have been given everything you need for life and godliness. Will there be times when you look at the bank balance twice? You better believe it. Will there be times when you're wondering or wanting? Quite possibly. But does it mean that you don't have what you need for life and godliness? Absolutely not. The calendar is flipped. It's a brand new day. You can't go back. There might be a cold day, but it is increasingly become, becoming the warm day of spring even now. Uh, to put it another way, uh, the difference between 1159 and 1201 is just two minutes, right? Except it's actually a whole new day. 1201 looks a heck of a lot like 1159, but it's a brand new day. It's still dark. It looks like it. It's still, it's still cold. It looks like it. But the truth is, the calendar flipped and you can't go back to the day before. Once you're at 1201, you can never go back to 1159. When Jesus got out of the ground, it became 1201. Brand new day, brand new season, brand new possibilities. You may not think that you have everything you need for life and godliness. You may think it's 1159, but the truth is, it's 1201. You have to begin to believe it's 1201. You have to begin to believe. You have to begin to live like it's 1201. If you want to enter into what Peter is talking about, you have to begin to believe that it really is 1201 and it is going to become increasingly bright, increasingly bright, increasingly bright, increasingly new, increasingly new. The reality of the day that you live in is going to become an increasing reality. Does this make sense? This is huge, by the way. This is not as... Y'all are too sleepy this morning. Like, I'm actually giving you some stuff that could change your life. Don't shout me down because I'm preaching good. Not only that, but when it seems like there's too little, even in moments when it seems like there's too little in your life and you're still a needy person, there's still more than enough. On one occasion, on one occasion, Jesus has been preaching for a while. That's what preachers do. 
they preach for a while, and the disciples become concerned about Jesus' ability to sustain a message, and that was actually a joke. And, and they say to Jesus, hey, you should send these people home because they're going to get hungry and they might pass out on the way. And Jesus turns around to them and he says to them, you give them something to eat. And by the way, when Jesus turned to the disciples and said, you give them something to eat, he wasn't joking. He really didn't mean you give them something to eat. And they're like, Jesus, what are we going to do? There's so many people here. And we don't have enough. It would take, like, it would take months wages to do this thing. And then Jesus says, well, what do you have? And they say, well, we've got, we got a couple loaves. We've got a couple fish. Jesus says, hand those to me. He breaks them up, prays a prayer of thankfulness. That's kind of a key. Praise a prayer of thankfulness, thankful for what he has. And he tells the disciples, have everybody sit down and you guys pass this out. And the end of the story ends up being this. The guys who were convinced there was not enough, the guys who were convinced that there was nothing but lack, the guys who were convinced that the world and the universe operated on the realm of scarcity and lack had to go home holding a basket full. There were 12 basketfuls. And each disciple went home, however many miles that was, however many miles that was holding a, a, a basket of not enough. This is, this is the genius of Jesus. He's flipping the script. Even when you think there's not enough, there's actually enough. Not only that, but when you think there's not enough, there's actually more, en- more than enough. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, there's an abundance. Uh, this is ultimately a faith issue. This is ultimately a faith issue. To put it in the vernacular of what we were talking about last weekend, uh, if you've had one bite of the enchilada, why don't you just go ahead and have another bite? Like, if you're going to believe one ridiculous thing, why not let's just go ahead and believe another ridiculous thing? I mean, if you're really going to believe that some guy lived 2,000 years ago, that he lived, that he was crucified, that he was buried, and that he was raised, and that somehow that means something really good for you and I, if you're going to believe that, well, then why don't you just go ahead and believe something even more ridiculous? Why don't you believe that the good stuff is here now, that it isn't later? Why don't you just go ahead and believe that he has given us everything we need for life and godliness? Why don't you just go ahead and believe that? Why stop with one ridiculous thing? Peter says that we've been given everything we need. But it begs the question, if we have been given everything we need for life and godliness, it begs the question, what did we receive? What did we receive? Here's what I mean by that. When you came into the kingdom, did you just receive heaven instead of hell. See, a lot of us growing up in the South, we came into the kingdom and really what we received was not everything that pertains to life and godliness. We just received heaven later instead of hell. You know, the get out of hell free card. Some of you all grew up and that's basically what you got. Some of us got the get out of jail free card. But what I'm here to say is this. I'm here to say that's way too little. That's like settling for the garnish I'm saying we should have the meal. What's the meal? Well, the meal is heaven instead of hell. And it's heaven instead of hell, not just later, but now as well. How many of you understand that heaven and hell are not tomorrow? They can be like Thursday. And if you've lived honestly, if you can be an honest person at all, uh, everybody in this room has experienced a little bit of hell. We have no trouble believing that, right? Come on. We have no trouble believing that we can experience hell right now. Why can't we believe that we could experience heaven right now? See, some of it is because we thought we got something else. God was handing out everything and we took some. God was handing out all and we took a little piece. God was handing out all that pertains to life and godliness and we took out 
post-mortem resurrection possibilities. It's more than that. It's mercy instead of judgment. It's forgiveness of all of our sin. It's purpose and dignity. It's open doors and wide vistas. And then to top it, off, top it all off, it's his very heart. It's transformation from the inside out. That's what the Peter passage is about this morning. It's about the possibility of becoming just like Jesus. It's about not just believing that Jesus is exceptional. Lots of people believe that Jesus is exceptional. But believing that he has made you and I into a new creation. It's believing that, believing that new creation has taken a hold of our own life. Believing that kindness is always an option for me. Believing that gentleness and joy are always options for us. Without gritting our teeth, without acting. If you've believed one ridiculous thing, go ahead and believe another. If you've taken one bite of the enchilada, why not have another? Love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, mercy, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are all things that are a possibility right now. Why? Because he's given, every, given us everything we need for life and godliness. Every single thing. Some of us have received too little. I want to show another picture this morning. Do you guys like this? What is this? Can somebody tell me what this is in the room? It's, not, it's actually not a trick question. What is this? It's a stick. What else? What else? What else? A walking stick? Is this anything else? It's a rod. What else? A club. What else? A bat. Is it anything else? A beating stick. It's a snake killer. Have you all noticed that the right side of the room is infinitely more creative than the left? Come on, left side. Can somebody tell me what this is? It's a tree. That's right. Um, One of the Rogers boys instantly, as soon as I put this up, I said, what is this? He said, a peg leg. What else is this? Firewood. Is it anything else? A writing instrument. A back scratcher. Left the left side is come on, left side. It's a marker. It's a stick pony. It's barkless. What else? Anybody else have anything brilliant? Part of your fence. It's a part of your fence. A non-returning boomerang. A non-returning boomerang. <laughs> Somebody on the right side just went extra meta. Can I think There's always one in every crowd. That's what I've got to say. There's always one. You get one in every crowd. This is the problem with opening up opening up speaking to the peanut gallery. Yeah. The point here, you guys have done really well, by the way. The point here is, is this a stick? Yeah, it's a stick. But is that the only thing that it is? No. No, no, no. 
But how many of you understand that if you receive it as a stick, all you get is a stick? See, some people have done the same thing with Jesus and the work of God. We have received it as a, je- as a get out of jail free card. Or we've received it as a don't go to hell when you die card. And we've missed most of what it really is. Peter says, you've received everything that pertains to life and godliness. And some of us have received only a little bit of post-mortem assurance. What a bummer. This is also why Peter says, through the knowledge of him who called us. Let's put that back up. This is actually very important. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness This next little phrase, through the knowledge of him who called us. Through the knowledge of him who called us. See, who you are, who you are, and what you believe, and what you will become, in some way is determined not only by what God is giving you, not only by what God is handing out, but also by what you're able to see and what you're able to receive. God is giving everything, but if you just see a stick, all you get is a stick. Does this make sense? God is giving everything, but if you just see post-mortem salvation, all you get is post-mortem salvation. Does this make sense? What I'm hoping to do is stir up, see it a little bigger, see it a little bigger. We cannot over-exaggerate who Jesus is, what he has done, and what it means that he has been resurrected forever. We've got to reflip this thing. We've got to reflip this thing. Who you are and who you're becoming is not just determined by what God has handed out. It, it is in some way profoundly determined by what you see and what you receive. It's a big deal. So we have to ask the question, who was Jesus? Was he just some crazy carpenter? Was he a failed Messiah? That's what some people believe. Uh, was he a moral teacher? One of the things you'll hear, you almost never hear this language, but... You hear something like this. Lots of people right now uh, believe that there was a historical Jesus. Uh, They believe there's some guy who was running around in Nazareth a couple thousand years ago. But they ultimately believe he's just a a, a moral teacher. Or is he the son of God who saves us from the post-mortem hell? Or is he the son of God who wishes that people would act better and smile more? See, some people have, have received the Jesus story and go, Well, it's mostly just about this guy. And I actually believe he was the son of God. But he mostly just wants us to act better and smile more. You see how you can actually get some things right about the story and still have the whole story completely wrong? Like you can actually believe that Jesus was the Son of God, but unless you see it for who He really is, believing that He's the Son of God uh, still leaves it as a stick. You get a stick, you 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 won't get a fence post. And in fact, you can believe that Jesus is the Son of God and you could stumble over the stick and it's even less useful. You can actually get some things right and still be completely wrong about who Jesus is and what the story means. So who is Jesus? Or, or is Jesus this? Is he the Son of God who by his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension has kicked off God's new creation project, who has laid down into the foundations of the earth and raised them up in his resurrection, who is reaffirming God's original affirmation that creation is good, who is settling... And who is setting people free, not just from the penalty of sin, but from sin itself. See, some people believe that Jesus' work sets them free from the penalty of sin. That's only half true. The work of Jesus actually sets you free from sin itself. Romans 6. 
This is not just the penalties of sin, but sin itself. Or is Jesus the one who won by losing, who takes in the weak and the maimed, who gives the honor to the dishonorable, who cleanses the lepers, who frees the oppressed, who leaves the 99, runs after the one, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, who stands in solidarity with everyone who is oppressed. All the guilty, all the losers, all those who have been tortured and killed throughout history, including the 150 who were killed and murdered last week in Africa. Did you guys see that? Like when those people get shot and when those people get murdered, Jesus is there. He's there. Jesus is, he is ultimately the one who is in solidarity with everyone who's been oppressed, tortured, killed, murdered. See, you have to see, who is Jesus? It's got to be bigger, otherwise we just get a stick. So much, so much bigger. Uh, not only that, but is he the one who stands at the door and knocks of, at the door of every church? Uh, is he sitting at the right hand of God, the one who lives ever to make intercession? See, what you see is what you'll be. What you see in Jesus is what you be. If you see a little bit, you just get a little bit. If you see something wider, you get something much wider. That's why we have to know Jesus, not just in our head, but in our heart. And then we have to begin to believe it. Now, you have to make your knowledge... When Peter says, through the knowledge of him who called us, you have to make your knowledge complete with experience. And this is where most disciples fail. We have in America mostly adopted an intellectual gospel. Uh, We've worked it out mathematically. It's systematic. Uh, Jesus pays my penalty. I get set free from sin. But we never enter into the experience of knowing Jesus. And the truth is you can't really know Jesus until you enter into the kinds of things that Jesus does, into the kind of work that Jesus is doing. There is a kind of knowledge that is essential but can only come by experience. So for instance, when Jesus says he's the one who leaves the 99 and goes and chases the one, until you, until you, until I actually leave the 99 and go chase down a one, you won't know Jesus that way. Does this make sense? In fact, I know somebody here at the vineyard. I know somebody here at the vineyard who two weeks ago, literally, not metaphorically, we have to sometimes get this out of metaphor land, literally left the 400 here at the vineyard and went and chased a literal one and saved his life. And I'm not talking about his metaphorical life. I'm not even talking about his actual act, afterlife. I'm talking about his actual life actual life and because of that and because of that Stephen knows Jesus in a way that most of us have yet to enter into Stephen Clark he left the 99 and he went after the one I'm not leaving until you come out saved a person's actual life so we have to enter into the experience God has given you everything you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. We have to come to know Jesus. There is, there, is a, there is a knowing that leads us into everything we need. Leaving the 99, chasing after the 1. I want to talk to you for a moment about how God baits the hook. How does God bait the hook? What do I mean by that? Well, how does God get us to believe things that we're struggling to believe how does God get us to enter into things that we wouldn't naturally enter into well God baits the hook and God gets us to enter into things that we wouldn't naturally enter into by giving us promises look at verse 4 all of this stuff divine power everything that pertains to life and godliness 
through the knowledge of him. Well, how do we get knowledge of him? Verse 4, by which he has given to us, granted to us, his precious and very great promises. Promises are door openers. Promises are, promises are mind-shaping events. Promises are heart-breaking events with God. And God invites you and I into directions that we never would have considered by giving us promises. If we can't believe the whole enchilada, he'll just give us a little bite. And he brings us out with one little bite. Most of us in the room probably have a hard time believing that we have everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. And so God comes along and he says, well, how about this little promise over here? I'll give you this little promise. I I love it like this. We have to see it in terms of the whole text. To to a barren Abraham and Sarah, God comes along and says, I'm going to give you a son. And then he comes back a few years later and says, no, no, not a son. I'm I'm going to give you descendants that no one can count. And then to Gideon. Scared Gideon down in a wine press, so afraid that someone's going to take his stuff. To a scared Gideon, God shows up one day and he says, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. See, God has a way of bringing up some of the things that we don't want to talk about. And he has a way of interjecting hope in the very areas that we believe that we're broken needy. In the very places that you believe that you're the most broke, and the very places that you feel the most needy, those are the places that God wants to show up and give you a promise. And the promise will be the hook that brings you into divine nature. Look at what Peter says there. By which he has granted to us his very precious and great promises, so that through them, through what? Through the promises, you may become partakers or participants in divine nature. See, it's another thing we have a hard time believing. Do you realize that every person who has put their trust in Jesus has become a home for the Holy Spirit and you have become somehow mysteriously united with the Holy Ghost, with God the Father, and with Jesus? They are in you, you are in them, and somehow you have actually begun to partake of divine nature whether you believe it or not. Your DNA, you've got, you're, you're getting a DNA flip change here. And so God has a way of bringing us in that way. God comes to people who are heartbroken and he gives them hope god comes to people who see a stick and he he starts talking about baseball bats this is how it works most of the church looks at the work of jesus and sees a stick and god comes along and he'll start talking about baseball and we're like why is god talking about baseball and the very place that you feel the most weak and the, and the most needy is the very place that God will seem like he's changing the subject, but oftentimes is putting his finger on the very thing that you feel the most incompetent about. I'm convinced this is one of the things that, the God, that God is doing in the church all over the world right now. We're, we're obsessed with stick, and he, he's talking about baseball. He's like, man, that's not just a stick there. You pick it up and swing it, some stuff can happen. But promises, they have this way of illuminating and they, and they make room for faith to grow. Promises are always pregnant with hope. Promises are God's way of inviting us into something new. In fact, just this week, just this week I had an, an encounter with the Lord. I was, in my, I was in my barn this week. I have, a little, I have a little man cave in my barn. It's a 12 by 12 area and it's just incredibly masculine. 
it's phenomenally masculine. Everything is wood. There's there's a layer of smoke and ammunition that just has settled onto that room. Women can't even they can't even come near it. No, because it's just too powerful. It's just too much. As a woman approaches my man room, they it's like it's like kryptonite. They they have like and if she's somehow able to get within five feet, both ovaries just go. It's 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 that masculine. It's just there's something about it. Every man needs a space like that. That's just estrogen free. I mean, I love my wife, but I you you need a place that your wife just can't even think in. You know, something. You need a place that just allows this thing to happen. Anyway, so I'm in my man room. I'm in my man room, and I'm just sitting on sitting on my stool, and and I'm praying. You need a, see. You need a place to pray. I built this to hold my guns and to have a place to pray. It's mostly what it is. So I'm in there and I'm just praying. I'm actually praying for a couple people at the church who are just really whacked out. And I was basically telling the Lord, man, these people need help and I don't know what to do with them. Lord, you need to help them because I can't help them. I tried, didn't work, moving on. You know, it's kind of where I was at. And right in this spot of just praying for a couple people, um, the Lord changes the subject on me and he doesn't talk to me about this thing that I'm talking to him about at all. In fact, he comes and talks to me about something completely different and he talks to me in a way that I haven't heard him talk to me in about two years. It was like his presence just came so strong in the room with me and and this is what he said to me. This is what he basically said to me verbatim. And it wasn't external audible, but it was like very, very strong internal audible. I began to think some thoughts and feel them thinking and feeling at the same time. And some of the language is not even my language. I'll tell you what he said and you'll understand what I mean. He said to me, Adam, I have not forgotten any of the promises I made to you. He said, every single thing that I've told you about the state of Kentucky will surely come to pass. He said, out of Nazareth will come my purpose. Out of Galilee will come my heart. Uh, People who have been overlooked will be honored and, and unforeseen places will be raised up. And then he left. He made me a promise again about all the promises that he's made to me. And if you, some of you guys know me a little bit, uh, the people who know me a little bit know that this is a recurring theme in my life. God always comes to me, and when he comes to me, he generally wants to talk about one thing, and it's that. He wants to talk about this city and this state. He's been talking to me about this for 20 years. And it's not like I've stopped believing the things that he had to say to me about those topics but he came to me this week and he said that to me again and in doing so he increased my capacity to believe things that seem impossible he baited the hook and as I took the hook one more time I have more faith I have more faith that he could do something impossible in our state how many of you understand that Kentucky 
is a ridiculed state in America. Uh, people think that no good thing could come from here. Ten years ago, uh, the Lord told me that Campbellsville is a Nazareth community. Just like people said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? People are saying, can any good thing come out of Campbellsville? And just like the Son of God was born in a know-nothing town that no one had faith for, the Son of God is going to be born again in Campbellsville as well. And not only in Campbellsville, but places just like Campbellsville, places that are overlooked, unseen, dishonored, no faith. Everybody thinks the good stuff happens in New York City and L.A. And the Lord is saying, no, I'm going to do it in hidden secret places with nobodies and with losers. Everybody thinks you have to have uh, the right stuff. You have to have the right shoes, the right car, the right pants the right makeup, the right education, the right amount of money in the bank. And God has been talking to me for 20 years about how he's going to do something that is going to stun the nation and he's going to do it with losers and with nobodies from nowhere with nothing. And how many of you understand that you can't believe that up front until the Lord tells you and he has to bait the hook. He has to bait the hook. And, and this week, he baited the hook again, and it went deeper in my mouth. And as, as a result, I have an incre- increased capacity to believe the impossible, and I have an increased capacity to participate in the divine nature, that God could do something with nobodies from nowhere and, and, and bring his kingdom out. Does this make sense? Yeah, this is, this is it. See, in cont- let's, just, let's just talk about us for a while. Uh, see, in Kentucky, uh, we believe that we're nobody. We actually believe the whole, we've been told for so long that we're nobody, we've actually begun to believe that we're nobody. Uh, we, we live mostly with a sense of lack. Uh, we live with a, a profound insecurity uh, with respect to everyone else, uh, intellectually, educationally, financially. Uh, we believe that we're nobody. And, and God is saying, uh, you have everything you need for life and godliness. I'm going to do it with losers and nobodies. It's in our veins. But you won't believe that until he begins to speak a promise to you. Promises are always doorways into believing the impossible. How many of you understand that Abraham never would have believed, Abraham never would have believed that he, that he would be the father of a nation until he first believed that he could be a father of a son? It's interesting to me that God did not talk to Abraham first about being the father of a nation. He first talked to him about being Actually, he first told him, leave your father. And then the second thing he told him was, you'll be a father of a son. And then finally, you'll be the father of a nation. God just keeps baiting the hook. More promises, increased capacity to believe something that seems impossible. Now, this is instructive. It's instructive for a couple reasons. Number one, because God is a promise maker. We We enter into divine nature by believing promises. But the, the first thing we need to see is that God is a promise maker. Uh, And what this really means is that God is faithful. For everybody who has a promise, the thing that we need to hold in our heart is that God is faithful. He is faithful. He is going to do what He said He's going to do. Uh, But the other thing is this. Um, It also means that there's a huge part of your life and my life, your journey and my journey, that's tied up in who God is and what He wants to do with you and with me, meaning that you and I are not the only ones who get to decide what our lives look like. Meaning that you're not the only one who gets to have a vision for your life. You have to leave some space for God to have a vision for your life. He's a promise maker. Secondly, it means that participating with with God's promises lead us into a brand new reality. Peter calls it divine nature. Uh, Divine nature means living without the influence of fear and shame. Most people never do what they were called to do in God because they're afraid and they're covered with shame and they think they don't have enough money. 
Uh, one of the things I do, I, I often get a chance to travel around the church, and a lot of times I'll, we do a little exercise together. Uh, I ask people, what would you do if you were not afraid, if you were not insecure, and money were not a problem? Tell me about it. And I have people tell me about it. And invariably, the things that people tell me when they begin to think, what would I do if I didn't have fear, if I didn't have shame, and, I, and, I didn't, and money was not, an, not a problem, invariably, the things that people tell me under those circumstances are the very things that God wants them to do. Most people never take a step into who they're really called to be and what they're really called to do because they're so afraid, they're so shameful, and they think they need a million dollars to do it. See, divine nature means believing a promise more than believing your inabilities. And when you begin to take steps into what God has promised you, you become who you were really meant to be. Now, as I'm talking, some of us are thinking, well, what about hard times? If God's given us everything we need for life and godliness, does this mean there won't be hard times? Are you trying to sell me some... Are you trying to sell me some prosperity gospel? Nope. In fact, I'm going to tell you the right opposite. Uh, Once you begin to believe God's promises, one of the things you can be sure of is that there will be hard times. Uh, There will be suffering. It it won't all be roses. If Jesus suffered, then you and I will suffer. Jesus said the servant is not above the master. But we can suffer knowing that. We can suffer knowing that all of our suffering will lead to a more profound glory. Uh, if you'd like to have glory in your life, uh, here's the good and the bad news. The good news is you can't have glory. The bad news is you can't have glory without going through the door of suffering. That's the, that's the doorway. Uh, not only that, but uh, this past week, two weeks ago, I hung out with somebody who has done a, a profound amount of suffering in the last year and a half. Someone who has, who has had their life touched with the sting of suffering. And when I talk about someone who's had their life touched by the sting of suffering, what I don't mean is they were an idiot and made a bunch of bad decisions. Does this make sense? If you're an idiot and you make a bunch of bad decisions, it can be painful, but that's not the kind of suffering we're talking about. I'm talking about uh, the fact that life is complicated, life oftentimes doesn't make sense, and really bad things sometimes happen to good people. Anybody met that person? Well, I was hanging out with somebody who's who's experienced a tremendous amount of pain and, and suffering in the last year and a half. They were not an idiot. Uh, they, they, they didn't fill their lives up with sin. They didn't reap uh, the, the, the consequences of, of sowing a lot of terrible seed. They just went through some fire. And, and they, in, in the process of suffering, they, they yielded to it, and, and they, they became broken open. And in those places where they suffered the most, glory got added to them, and they're not even the same person that I used to know. Like they're not the same person. There's a there's a buoyancy in who they are. There's a there's a there's a lightness. It's it's not a it's not trivialness, but it's 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 joy and it's the absence of fear. Once you've once you've looked your own mortality in the eye, and once you've done that with God, there's this absence of fear and there's something else that surrounds this person, and they're not even the same person I used to know. Does this make sense? Yeah. Like God's promises lead us into areas that we would never consider going. And it doesn't mean that it's all going to be rosy. It might mean that some of it's incredibly painful. But the good news is, even where it's painful, God will add glory to it. There's a doorway there. And now we get to step one step more into divine mystery. One step more. I want you to notice something here. This will help you. In verse 3, Peter says, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life 
and godliness, meaning that God has given us everything we need. I want you to hold that in your head. Everything we need in your left hand. Let's just do that. We'll do this. Everything you need in your left hand. Now look in your right hand. I want you to hold this. Look at verse 5. For for this very reason, meaning everything above, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Left hand, God has given you everything you need. Right hand, you need to make every effort to supplement your faith. Now who in here is a big enough Christian that you can hang on to both of these ropes at the same time? Here's what I want to tell you. Most denominations, most Christians, most church movements around the world believe one or the other. Almost no one believes both. And the kingdom of heaven is for people who can hold both. You have been given everything you need for life and godliness and you need to make every effort to supplement your faith. This is the nature of grace. A lot of us have uh, come under the influence of certain grace teachings that mean uh, you just kick your feet up, it's all done in Jesus, and, and, and chill. That's garbage, guys. You've got to make every effort. Verse 5, make every effort to supplement your faith. Meaning that there's going to be some sweat involved. Let me tell you about grace. Grace doesn't mean there's no sweat. Grace sometimes means that there's more sweat. Dallas Willard used to say, grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. Totally different. To enter into the true nature of God's grace, it's actually going to require some effort. Not just some effort, but as Peter says, every effort. This is a divine mystery. This is a divine mystery. But the people who I have seen who do the best are people who have faith that God has supplied us with everything we need and at the same time are big enough, big enough, flexible enough to hang on to this other side to make every effort. Unless you make every effort, you'll never be able to progress in, in faith and grace. Grace can be sweaty. Grace can be sweaty. Christianity is rooted... Christianity is firstly rooted in being. Being. But then out of that being, doing. Dead works are always doing in order to try to be. That's that's true all the way. But just because you be, doesn't mean you won't do. In fact, after you be, you will do more than you ever thought you would do. There's going to be some sweat involved. And some of us might be thinking, well, what about Hebrews? And what about Jesus as our Sabbath? And what about rest? I say yes to all of that. Jesus is our Sabbath and Jesus is our, is our rest. But how many of you understand that Sabbath is not opposed to the effort that Peter is talking about here? And how many of you know that sometimes you sweat the most on Sunday? How many of you understand that sometimes you sweat the most on your day off? How many of you know that sometimes on your day off you get out in the yard with your kids and you throw football and you run around and you shoot basketball and in a few minutes because of the space that rest allows, the capacity for fun, you end up sweating and working more on your day off than you ever would on Monday or Tuesday. Does this make sense? How many of you understand that sometimes on Sunday afternoon in order to make a dinner for your whole family, you work harder and you sweat more than you would on Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday night Does this make sense? How many of you understand that sometimes on Sunday afternoon when you're watching JB play 18th hole three times over? Did you guys watch that last week? Did you guys watch JB Holmes win the golf tournament? Three playoff holes in a row. How many of you understand that sometimes when you're watching JB play the 18th three times in a row, sometimes you sweat more there than you will tomorrow when you go to work? See, here's the thing. Grace 
And God's invitation opens up space for us. And in the area of wideness, openness, uh, we'll call it fun. Uh, Fun is actually a really important word when it comes to living in holiness. Fun. Sometimes because of invitation, sometimes because of the possibility of fun, sometimes because of wide open spaces, wide open spaces, you will actually end up working harder, not for something, but from something and enter in deeply. Grace is, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Jesus earned. We can supply some effort. And by the way, for those who were wondering about Hebrews, what Hebrews says, what about Hebrews, what about Jesus as our Sabbath, and what about rest? Well, I would like to remind you of one scripture in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says this, make every effort to enter that rest. Think about that for a while. Isn't that wild? The writer of Hebrews says, you should enter rest, you need rest, we have a rest, our Sabbath is Jesus, and you should make every effort, same word, to enter into that rest. Grace is not opposed to effort. In fact, it's going to take some effort. God has given us everything we need, and we should supply every effort to supplement our faith. Supplement your faith with virtue. You got some faith? Good. It came from God. Now give it some virtue. Hold them both in your left and your right hands. The truth is, this morning, you and I have been supplied. If we have been supplied, the question next is, for what? If you've been supplied with everything you need for life and godliness, you have to ask yourself, what have I been supplied for? Like, if God would give me everything I need for life and for godliness, what is He supplying me for? Let me put it for you this, and then we'll be done. Um, Imagine a CEO, imagine a CEO of a company who, who gives every single one of his employees an amazing training. Trains every single employee. Imagine the CEO gives every single employee not only training, but a computer. And not only a computer, but a cell phone. And not only a computer and a cell phone, but a company car. And imagine that this CEO is incredibly generous and he gives everybody three suits. He gives you a navy suit, a black suit, and a gray suit. Now imagine after you receive a navy, a black, and a gray suit, a cell phone, a computer, and a company car, and training, imagine the CEO gets everybody in the room and says, don't do anything. How many of you understand that's ridiculous? That's ridiculous. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, and if that's true, it begs the question, for what? For what? For what? He wants us to partake in the divine nature. He wants us to enter into His promises. He wants us to make every effort. He actually wants us to sweat a little bit. He wants us to go on a journey. He wants us to walk out into the unknown like Abraham did. And how many of you understand that when Abraham and Sarah set out from their mom and dad with everything they had, not knowing where they were going, they sweat. It got hot out there. Every single mile they were stepping closer and closer to the promised land and the destiny that God had for them. This is a word for us. This is a word for us. Amen? Amen. Amen, amen, amen. amen. Hey, uh, why don't y'all stand up? I want to pray for you this morning. Woo. Unless you're holding a baby, don't, don't stand up. You got a tiny baby. Why don't you just put your hand on your heart? I'm going to pray this morning. Oh, by the way, I wanted to tell you guys, we had two people come to faith last week. Uh, here, and we're going we're gonna to baptize them. And by the way, they were, they were both out. This is what's really, yeah. 
This is cool. This is what's really cool. I, I forgot to tell you this. Um, outliers. Outliers. It's people who would not normally come to faith later in life. Jesus snatching people. It was so cool. Yeah, that's what he does. That's what he does. It's so cool. All right, back to what we were doing. I got ADD today. I need a pill. Is there a pill for that? There is. I don't want it. Jesus, would you give us everything we need for life and godliness? God, would you cause us to wake up to the fact that you have already given us everything we need for life and godliness? Right now, God, would you show us the degree to which kindness and joy and love and patience are always available to us? Always available to us. They're available because you gave them to us. God, we ask that you would ratify your promises to us. Would you come and make promises again? Would you amplify the voice of promise in our ear? God, would you give us faith to believe the impossible? God, would you cause us to enter into the divine nature, to set out on journeys, places we didn't know we would ever go? And we ask this in the name of Jesus who was crucified, dead, buried, raised, and has ascended to the Father, whoever lives to make intercession for us, who is wonderful. Amen. Give somebody a high five and a hug. Give somebody a high five and a hug. Amen. The Mass is ended. Go in peace.